Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on a shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcasts at home is quite easy. You could use a shortwave radio with a schedule of English-language broadcast, but it's simpler to use a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from France 24, Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, Radio Havana Cuba, and NHK World Radio Japan. We will begin with France 24. For the first time, global warming has exceeded 1.5 degrees Celsius for an entire year, according to the European Union Climate Service called Copernicus. Vincent-Henri Pouche, a director at Copernicus, explains what the figure means, how it was compiled, and if the 2015 Paris Agreement has been broken. France 24 For the first time, global warming has exceeded 1.5 degrees Celsius across an entire year. That is according to the EU's climate service, Copernicus. Scientists have called the development a warning to humanity. To tell us a bit more, I'm very pleased to be joined live now by Vincent-Henri Persch, who's the director of the Atmosphere Monitoring Service at Copernicus. Could you just tell us, first of all, how Copernicus reached this conclusion that the 1.5 degrees centigrade threshold had been breached last year? Yes, at Copernicus, and the, we uh, use uh, observations from satellite, from non-satellite, which we combine with models to provide a picture of the uh, evolution of temperatures, but also a, a lot of other parameters of the Earth systems. Were you surprised when you heard that indeed there had been this breach or not at all? I would say uh, not really. Uh, it's uh, So it's the eight months in a row uh, that is uh, the highest uh, months on record, so January compared to January's in, in, in the past. So we are in uh, a series of months that are, that are extremely high in temperature. It's not a surprise. Uh, the IPCC already a few years ago in a special report indicated that there was a chance to have high hot years, uh, more than 1.5 degrees above the pre-industrial reference. That's what we observe. Uh, in, in January, if we look at the period from February 2023 to, to the end of January, we are uh, more than 1.5 degree, 1.52 exactly uh, above the uh, pre-industrial value. So it's not it's not a surprise. We also understand uh, the driving force be, behind this uh, hot temperature, which are primarily the emissions of uh, greenhouse gases by human activities. Indeed, and it is worth emphasising that this year-long breach doesn't actually break the Paris 2015 agreement for the moment because that would be a rise of 1.5 degrees Celsius over several years, but. Look, how serious really is today? Is there still time, do you think, to stop a permanent breach of that limit? 
Yes, as you rightly say, uh, it's not a breach of the objective of the Paris Agreement. Uh, it would need to be uh, exceeded on a climatological basis, so several decades uh, to, uh, to to be in, in breach. At the same time, uh, we know that the solution to this issue are unfortunately in very few numbers. The, the key thing to do is to cut down greenhouse gas emissions, particularly of uh, CO2 and methane. And unfortunately, the, uh, the world is not yet uh, on a trend to zero emission, uh, which is what would be needed to start to stop this, uh, this process and, and, and eventually to, to revert. Quite the contrary, uh, global emissions are, are still uh, are stable or slightly increasing as a result of certain parts of the world still emitting uh, even more uh, emissions of greenhouse gases and others trying to cut them back. But uh, we, unfortunately, without a, a very strong action on cutting these emissions, uh, there is no hope that the situation could uh, improve uh, in, in the next decades. Can you paint a picture for us of what this planet will look like, let's say, in the next two years, if this limit, the 1.5 limit, is breached for the next two years? So nothing dramatic would immediately happen. Uh, I, I would say that this limit of 1.5 degree has been set considering also what we call climate tipping points. So the uh, the uh, in principle uh, the uh, if if we cut down emissions of greenhouse gases to zero, the situation of the temperature uh, increase and climate change in general could be reversed. However, there are certain uh, aspects in the climate system which we call tipping points. So these relates uh, relate, for instance, to ice sheets, to uh, uh, large forests like the Amazon, uh, large uh, weather features like the West African monsoon or uh, big uh, circulation in the ocean, that could be changed forever. So the uh, 1.5 degree is, is uh, uh, thought to be uh, a limit above which uh, some of these tipping points could be uh, exceeded. And actually, it's a really uncharted territory. So uh, it's, uh, it's, it, it, it can seem something quite anecdotal, being 1.5, 1.6, or 1.4, but it is not. Uh, because we we don't know the scientific community doesn't know if uh, we we would be in a, in a situation where the change of climate could be irreversible. I want to thank you, sir, very much indeed for your time. You've been listening there to Vincent Henri Per. She's the director of the Atmosphere Monitoring Service at Copernicus. Thank you very much. That interview was from France Twenty Four. France 24 may be easily found at their website, france24.com, as well as a YouTube channel called France 24 English. They are also available at most podcast sites, as is the shortwave report. On to Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. The United States, Germany, and a number of other nations are stopping support for UNRWA, U-N-R-W-A, the United Nations Relief Agency that supports Palestinian refugees because of allegations by Israel that 13 of their workers were involved in the October 7th massacre. Christopher Gunnis, a former spokesperson for UNRWA, responds to the Israeli accusations. Then an interview from Deutsche Welle's weekly program called The Conflict Zone, with the former head of the Israeli Foreign Intelligence Service, the Mossad. 
They discuss possible outcomes of the war in Palestine and the fact that Israel helped create and support Hamas as a counterweight to the Palestinian Authority. Israeli activists are blocking trucks attempting to deliver food and medical supplies to Palestine. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. The United Nations Agency for Palestinian Refugees says a probe into whether some of its employees took part in the October 7th terror attack on Israel will report its findings by next month. Now, the agency has been rocked by allegations made by Israel that at least 13 of its employees engaged in terrorist acts last October and that hundreds more work for militant Islamist groups, including Hamas, in the Gaza Strip. Some of the agency's biggest donors, including the U.S. and Germany, suspended contributions because of these claims. Well, my next guest is Christopher Gunness, the former spokesperson for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. He is now executive director of the Myanmar Accountability Project. Israel has issued quite an indictment against your former place of employment. Um, what do you have to say to this? Well, Israel has produced some information I wouldn't use even the word indictment because it's clear from those who have seen this document, and to be clear, the dossier has never been handed over to UNRWA, either by the Israelis or by the major donors, including the German government. So to be clear, the dossier, as it's so-called, and those who have seen it can confirm, does not actually have evidence to link UNRWA staff members to the actual massacres. So there may be circumstantial evidence, but it's very clear that the description of this as a dodgy dossier in reference to the dossier that Tony Blair used to take Britain to war in Iraq is perhaps the right description of it. There is no actual evidence. There are accusations. Even the New York Times, which has been a willing accomplice to this piece of news management, even the New York Times correspondent in Jerusalem has admitted that much of this information is basically an Israeli file that is unchecked, it's uncorroborated. Anthony Blinken himself has said that the great security service of the United States have been unable to confirm this information independently. And yet for some reason he says he finds it compelling. I mean, I don't understand the logic. I think that this decision was rushed. I think it's disproportionate. And I think it's punitive because we have to think of the people under huge stress in Gaza, under uh, what the ICJ has called a plausible genocide. UNRWA has a zero tolerance policy towards these um, neutrality violations. We work with our major donors, including the German government. We see this as a partnership with the German government. So the failure, such as it's being described, mm -hmm. is as much a failure of the German government that's worked with UNRWA on these neutrality frameworks as it is the, the, the staff well, of UNRWA. And let me say... Sorry, after you. Yeah. I just wanted to say that what you're saying there, you're, you're, you're saying that the vetting process for, for all of, of your team members, for all of your employees, that that vetting process was complete and thorough, that you don't have any doubts whatsoever that some people may have we been able to slip, slip through. UNRWA runs the entire staff list through the Security Council's terrorism list, and there were no matches. But to be additionally careful as part of this zero tolerance policy. That list was handed over to Israel in May 2023, and not a single issue was raised. 
This decision by the donors, including Germany, that gives UNRWA 200 million euros each year is a violation of humanitarian principles of impartiality. Um, it's also a, a violation of international humanitarian law, which forbids food aid being used as a weapon of war. It's a violation of the ICJ's interim provisional measures, which made it clear that no member state should take any action that would limit humanitarian aid. And very lastly, it's a violation potentially of the Genocide Convention, which makes it an obligation of all state parties to prevent genocide. So frankly, Germany stands accused, in my view, of being complicit in a, in a violation of the Genocide Convention. And for a country like Germany, with its history, that is something which I think should be addressed. I think there should be an investigation into whether Germany's humanitarian aid was ring-fenced against political influence. And I think that just as the donors, such as Germany, are pointing the finger at UNRWA and saying, well, you've been politicizing your aid. What about Germany? Germany is weaponizing UNRWA, and it's doing so, let me say, because Israeli far-right politicians are calling for UNRWA to be dismantled, to be defunded, to be, well, me, Mr. Gitt, and to be me, destroyed. Let me pick up on that. I mean, sure. the, the, there are these calls Please. for, for UNRWA to, to, to be dismantled. What would happen then to the civilians? Um, in the Gaza Strip, if, if your former agency, if, if they were not able to carry out what they're supposed to do? Well, there are 1.2 million people on UNRWA's food distribution lists, and they are facing starvation. Mm. So that's why Germany would be held complicit um, in, the genocide, in, in the genocide, because thousands of people may well starve to death. The UN says 400,000 people are facing starvation right. imminently. Germany would be complicit in that, which, as I say, is a violation well, of the genocide. My guest this week here in Tel Aviv is Ephraim Halevi, former head of Israel's foreign intelligence service, the Mossad. For now, Europe and America are insisting that this war ends with a pathway to Palestinian statehood. Jerusalem says no. In the midst of this division, who and what can stop the bloodshed? You said recently, if we end the war without a clear-cut victory over Hamas, we will not have won the war. We have to carry on as long as we can in order for the other side to raise the white flag. What if they don't raise a white flag? If they don't uh, raise the white flag, uh, we will continue, I think, depending, of course, on the uh, patience of the international community, depending on many other uh, aspects, uh, including the problem of uh, Israel's uh, hostages, which are being held by the other side. I think it is uh, too early to make a final uh, estimate of how this war will ultimately end. You were asked uh, in an interview last year what you would say to the people of Gaza in the wake of this destruction, and you replied, I would say to the people of Gaza that it's your fault that you have played host to this group. Do you really think that? I think that it's their responsibility if they believe and understand that what the Hamas are doing to them for many, many years is against uh, their interests. It's uh, their duty to rise up against the Hamas. But we now know Israel actively assisted in the funding of Hamas, didn't it, as a counterweight to the Palestinian Authority in order to keep Palestinians disunited and unable to form their own government. Israel used to send a monthly uh, uh, quantity of food and other things, also 
financial help to the Hamas on a uh, monthly uh, agenda together with the Qataris. This enabled the Hamas to, in some ways, maintain its uh, authority in the, in the Gaza Strip. They were in charge there, and we did not want that they should be unable to buy food and to uh, do other things as well. By the way, I will say for many years, people uh, from the uh, uh, Gaza Strip used to enter Israel daily as workers, and uh, this uh, also gave them uh, employment and also uh, funding. And the Israeli hospital uh, system in Israel uh, played host to many people in the Hamas who received treatment there and also uh, underwent uh, very complicated operations in the best hospitals we have. So I don't think that if there's any way to uh, accuse Israel in this way of uh, being uh, improper in its treatment of the Hamas if you take the entirety over so many years. But they have to have something to hope for, don't they? I think so. I think there's something. And Israel has taken that away. In a real negotiation between us and them, I think we could reach a understanding which would be uh, supported by the international community, by the Arab world, with the United States and with Saudi Arabia, and to some extent even with Qatar, to see to it that there would be an option, a viable option, for a Palestinian state in one way or another. And if there isn't one, we have just have one war after another. I hope not. I, I don't want to be uh, despondent uh, in advance. I want to uh, hope for the better. Maybe uh, the time will come when the majority uh, on the other side of the border at the moment will realize that it is in their interest to find a modus vivendi with Israel. If I'm Halibin, it's been good to have you on Complex, sir. The relatives of some Israeli hostages have been taking part in protests against the delivery of aid at key border crossings into Gaza. Aid agencies say the flow of supplies is already insufficient to meet the needs of the hundreds of thousands of people now displaced inside the territory, with families and particularly young children bearing the brunt after four months of war. Meanwhile, at Israel's Kerem Shalom crossing with Gaza, Israeli protesters, including far-right groups and relatives of hostages, continued to block trucks of humanitarian aid. They're calling for deliveries to be halted until hostages held in Gaza are released. We are here from all of the country uh, for stopping the trucks from getting in to Gaza, into the Hamas. This is our mission and today we did it. Since the October 7 terror attacks, almost all food production in Gaza has been halted. For many, desperately waiting for trucks to arrive, humanitarian aid is the only lifeline. Those interviews and report were from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, dw.com as well as on YouTube at their channels called DW News and DW Documentary. They are also available at most podcast sites. Next, Radio Havana, Cuba. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley has called for the assassination of Iranian leaders after drone strikes killed three U.S. soldiers in Jordan. 
Incidents of hate and discrimination against Muslims and Palestinians in the United States have increased dramatically. Radio Havana, Cuba. U.S. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley has called for the Biden administration to assassinate Iranian leaders after three U.S. troops were killed in a drone strike on a base in Jordan. Haley made the comment in an interview on Fox News. Quote, first you do the sanctions and then you take out a couple of their leaders. That's the way you start. If they're in their country or do you not like Soleimani when they leave the country? You figure out where they are, our special operations can do that and then you take them out. U.S. President Joe Biden said he'd made the decision on how to respond to the drone strike but didn't disclose any details. He accused Iran of supplying the weapons used in the attack but said, I don't think we need a wider war in the Middle East. Martin Griffiths, the UN's Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs, has warned that the defunding of the U.S. Palestinian Refugee Agency would result in the collapse of the aid system in the Gaza Strip. The world cannot abandon the people of Gaza, Griffiths said in a joint statement with other humanitarian organization leaders. Incidents of hate and discrimination against Muslims and Palestinians across the U.S. increased dramatically as Israel's genocidal war in Gaza was ongoing in the last three months of 2023. The U.S.'s largest Muslim civil rights advocacy has announced. The Council on American Islamic Relations, the CAIR, released a, a fact showing survey showing that the organization received 3,000 578 complaints of anti-Muslim and anti-Palestinian hate between October and December of 2023. This is an increase of 178% over a similar period in the previous year. The increase in hatred came after earlier in 2023. CAIR reported that 2022 saw a drop in complaints of anti-Muslim hatred for the first time since the organization began tracking incidents in 1995, with a total of 5,156 complaints in 2022. The spike in complaints comes as Muslim and Palestinian communities in the U.S. have seen a new wave of hate and violence, with Israeli officials and U.S. Zionists stoking anti-Palestinian sentiment and spewing dehumanizing rhetoric about Palestinians as they're slaughtered en masse in Gaza. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu, though there's no podcast. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140, and from 5 p.m. to 11 at either 606060 or 6165. At their website, radiohc.cu, you can stream the English version at noon on Monday through Friday Pacific Standard Time. Some days it's not there, though, I'll tell you. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report, or could help support this listener-funded program like a listener in Willits, California did this week, my PayPal contact information is available at my website, outfarpress.com, or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Your support helps the weekly production and distribution of this show, which is supplied without cost to more than 100 radio stations around the world. We will conclude with NHK World Radio Japan. At the devastated Fukushima nuclear facility, at least five and a half tons of highly radioactive water has leaked out of a tank. Massive wildfires have swept across central Chile with at least 130 deaths.
Toyota Motors announced that it will start producing electric vehicles and batteries in Kentucky next year. NHK Japan. The operator of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant says it's now investigating how untreated water managed to leak out of the facility. Tokyo Electric Power Company says it's possible workers forgot to shut certain valves after an inspection. The issue was discovered Wednesday. The water, water reportedly came from a vent on a filtering device. TEPCO says those pipes have 16 manually operated valves. Ten of them were left open, resulting in the leak. TEPCO estimates about five and a half tons of water got out. The water is believed to have contained 220 times the standard level of radioactive substances that has to be reported to the government. The utility says the water is believed to have contained about 22 billion becquerels of cesium 137 and other radioactive substances that emit gamma rays. The standard level for reporting to the government is 100 million becquerels. TEPCO also says it's recovering soil from the site of the leak, as some of the untreated water may have seeped into the ground. Fukushima Prefecture's top crisis management official summoned the plant's director on Thursday. We will do everything we can to ascertain the cause and prevent this from happening again. The prefecture asked TEPCO to keep local residents informed about the impact of the leak and how it will prevent it from happening again. Massive wildfires have swept across central Chile. Authorities say at least 131 people are dead, with hundreds still missing. The fires are believed to have started near the coast before spreading to heavily populated areas in the mountains. The fires destroyed many homes in the nearby city of Viña del Mar. In one district, charred debris is all that was left of about 700 homes. Residents and volunteers are scrambling to find survivors and clear the wreckage. I only had a few minutes to evacuate. Some of my friends and neighbors died. I lost my house. I've lived there for 35 years. I'm just speechless. Most of the fires have reportedly been put out, but firefighting operations are still ongoing in some areas. Authorities say they're now investigating whether some of the fires were started deliberately. Toyota Motors says it will invest $1.3 billion in its flagship U.S. plant in Kentucky to start producing electric vehicles in 2025. Toyota's North American unit plans to start producing a new three row electric SUV at the Kentucky facility and add a battery pack assembly line. The batteries will be supplied by another plant in North Carolina. The auto giant had already announced last year that it would start producing EVs at its Kentucky facility. It said Tuesday the new funding raises the total investment in the plant to nearly $10 billion. Toyota's Japanese rivals are also expanding EV production in the United States. Nissan is producing EVs in Tennessee. Honda will start selling EVs jointly developed with General Motors in the U.S. market this year. It also plans to start producing its in house developed EVs at its Ohio plant in 2025. 
Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. On shortwave, they are heard at 9 p.m. at 13735 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. All the times they announce are for Pacific Standard Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. NHK may also be found at most podcast sites. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You will have to look harder these days because of U.S. and EU prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows, find information for online support. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 27th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. For 26 years, the shortwave report has been produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. While I am recuperating from spinal surgery, I am staying at a house that is connected to the grid. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.